Song number 31. We'll use that later in the service this evening. So good, in fact, for all of us to be able to be gathered back here this Sunday afternoon. The lesson, as you'll notice on the screen on the wall behind me, has to do with Enoch, that interesting gentleman found in the Old Testament. I did think that it would be a bit wise to begin the lesson, at least by reminding us of one of the statements that perhaps would come readily to mind. Namely, there's more than one Enoch in the Bible. And so to at least be aware of that fact, aware of that uh, consideration, this opening slide will, among other things, point us to this. The Enoch that I have in mind, and the one that we'll consider this evening, is certainly one of the greatest individuals that the Bible presents to us. He is an example of faith, according to Hebrews 11. We just had that read in our hearing a moment ago. And therefore, you and I could do well to pattern our life in faith in many ways after Him. And so tonight, what is it about Enoch? What are some things that might be said about him and of him using the Word of God that can be a very dramatic impact on your life and mine? As I mentioned a moment ago, there's more than one Enoch in the Bible. In fact, as you give thought to the Enoch that will be our focus of discussion, we appreciate that he lived early on in the history of the human family. Genesis chapter 5 will be the thrust of one of our first passages. And yet, there's an Enoch that existed before that one. In Genesis 4.17, there's a man named Enoch who, in fact, was the son of Cain. That means he was the grandson of Adam. And yet, that Enoch was not a very good man. There's some wickedness attached to him, and in fact, apparently a fair amount of it. But our interest is not on that one. Come with me to Genesis 5 as we notice a few things first said about the Enoch that is the man of our discussion tonight. Genesis chapter 5 is one of those chapters that has a lot of begetting in it. We have a name of a gentleman, and then he, we have the name of his son, and then the name of his son, and it continues through a host of generations. In fact, as you notice near the beginning of the chapter, verse 3 will read like this, and Adam lived in 130 years and begat a son in his, own, in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. And at that point, we now appreciate that that first man created Adam. We now read about at least one of his sons. We were familiar with Cain and Abel from a previous chapter, but now we learn about Seth. And at this point, rather quickly thereafter... I've listed for your considerations a number of generations. Adam had a son named Seth, and Seth had a son named Enos, and Enos had a son named Canaan, and Canaan had a son named Mahalalel, and Mahalalel had a son named Jared, and Jared had a son named Enoch. And therefore, we appreciate that the gentleman that will be our man of discussion, Enoch, was the great, great, great great-grandson of Adam. The seventh from Adam, as Jude will describe it a bit later. At least at this point, note the timing of things, would you? We remember that with that God's creation of Adam, and in those years that followed, we of course remember their lifespans were somewhat lengthy compared to ours today. But isn't it interesting that the consideration of the year of Enoch's birth was the year 622 a.m., now, that, that pair of letters, A-M, means Anno Mundi, in the year of the world. 
So if you start counting from the year 1 at God's creation, you arrive at the year 622 when Enoch was born. So again, we're a few hundred years removed from the time of the creation, and yet, as Enoch was born, we begin to notice some things that also sadly were the case. You'll notice next on the slide there are many things about Enoch that would identify well with you and me. He was a son after all, so he certainly had the opportunity to enjoy the matters in family. Not only that, let's turn to verse number 21 of Genesis 5 and let's read about Enoch. And Enoch lived sixty and five years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah three hundred years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were three hundred sixty and five years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And at that point, that is really the near-exhausted conclusion of what we have in regard to a man named Enoch. You'll notice on the bottom of that slide then, in addition to appreciating these things we have said about Enoch, it is said there, isn't it, that he and his wife bore a son named Methuselah. We're rather familiar with him, and we'll have more to say about him in just a moment. But isn't it interesting, the oldest man of which we have any record was a man named Methuselah. He lived to be 969 years old, almost a millennium. In that connection, you and I might pause to note this. Enoch walked with God. Enoch walked with God. In the midst of a world that was, quite frankly, also known for its wickedness. After all, remember that it wasn't that far removed from this time until Noah would be born. And Noah, of course, dealt with a world that was given to difficulty and wickedness continually. Genesis 6 verse 5. Consider with me the name Enoch. What does it mean? As nearly as I'm able to tell, the significance that often was attached to that word was dedicated. Now in that day and time, again, names often carried a significance. It often carried a meaning. And the word Enoch signifies dedicated. So it would seem to me we'd have to give some credit for Jared, who was Enoch's father, he and his wife naming him in the way that he did. But you appreciate that Enoch, in terms of dedication, is going to speak volumes to us here in just a moment. As we close that slide, and perhaps consider the next one, it has to do with these developments based on that passage, that one that we just read. Did you notice in verse number 22, it did say that Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah. Now, the way that's worded, I'm sure, makes each of us ponder a little bit, what about the life and times of Enoch before his wife became pregnant with Methuselah? If it says he walked with God after that time, is it perhaps he had a renewed vision, a renewed dedication to the Lord at that point in his life? I'm sure all of us as parents recognize rather well that dramatic and monumental change in life that comes with the birth of a child. Things are not the same anymore. You have the sole responsibility to care for and nurture and in fact do so in the admonition of the Lord, this young person now that's come into your life. What responsibility? 
What obligation, what duty is attached to this? Could it be that maybe it's not to say Methuselah, or rather that Enoch was ungodly before this, but could it be that with the birth of his son, with the pregnancy that came along with regard to that, maybe, maybe he was rejuvenated, renewed in his insistence toward God. It would certainly seem to say that the text points us in that direction. Not only that, look at what occurs next. Isn't that a reminder? How old was Enoch when that took place? Well, you'll notice again the text says this, verse 21, Enoch lived sixty and five years in Methuselah. He was age sixty-five. You and I notice then that it's never too late to come to the Lord. If there was a renewed vision, a renewed earnestness within him at that point in his life, isn't that a reminder that all of us, regardless of our age, we too can come to the Lord, we can understand that He has better things in store for us, and we can be motivated to dwell in the beautiful consideration of what God has, the kind of life that we have in association with Him. Didn't Jesus say, "'Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden,' and I will give you rest. That's true for young and old alike. It's not merely that Jesus invites youngsters to come to Him. He invites everybody. Let's close that slide like this. It is perhaps the thing most well known in relation to Enoch. May I again direct your attention to verse number 24. And Enoch walked with God. What a lovely statement to have made about a person. Enoch, in terms of the matters of his life at that point, he walked with God. The easiness of that statement and the great meaning behind it. It says, and he was not. Now, the word was is supplied by the translators. It literally reads, he not, for God took him. We find here that Enoch experienced something that was a very unique thing. As I've pointed out on the slide, we can simply take the, nine, the year of his birth and add to it this number that we've already highlighted. In the year 987 a.m., Enoch was translated. Enoch was not, for God took him. Enoch left the earthly scenes of this place and this existence and made his journey to the Hadean realm. He didn't physically die. He was translated. It seems instantly or in a moment... And as that happened, again, think about the uniqueness of what happened to him. We understand that God has said, as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. And yet as that sentence comes upon you and me today from the Hebrew writer of Hebrews 9.27, you notice that Enoch was translated. The Hebrew writer in a moment is going to share some more information about that. But what a fascinating thing to consider. We'll return to that, by the way, in just a moment when we come to another part of the lesson. But so far, we have cast a spotlight on Enoch and the Genesis account of him. Let's turn to a New Testament passage, though, and let it speak more about the man named Enoch. Would you turn to the second to the last book in the Bible, the little one-chapter book of Jude? Fascinatingly, Jude also shares with us some interesting things about Enoch. Things that shall be impressive to us. Things that will in many ways be very overwhelming. 
I'd like to read verses 14 and 15 of the book of Jude. It says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of thee, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now at that point here in the midst of this New Testament writing, Jude calls to our appreciation Enoch. First of all, did you notice how verse 14 begins? Enoch the seventh from Adam. A moment ago, we listed the genealogy of Adam that led to Enoch. And if you count those names, you find that Enoch is the seventh from Adam. He's talking about the same person that you and I had discussed just a moment ago. And yet, notice the first verb that occurs in that same passage. It says, he prophesied. Might you and I never forget that among other things that might be said about Enoch, he was a prophet. The text says he prophesied meaning that he was a prophet. I would suggest it's a bit interesting. We are so familiar with many of the prophets in the Bible. And so later on when we read about Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and a host of others, we even remember that there were prophets prior to them, people like O Elijah. But keep in mind, Enoch is said here to have prophesied and he lived long before people like Elijah. Notice what he prophesied. I would ask you to highlight this with me. It says, He prophesied of these. Who's the these that Jude referenced? In the context of those verses that occurred prior to it, he's talking about those who would choose to live in rebellion to God. Those that in fact would give their attention to living not consistently with the approval of the things God had revealed. Now in Jude's day, of course, there were those that were teaching false doctrine. There were those who weren't staying faithful to the Lord. And Jude, referring to them, said, Let me give you an example of a man who lived a long time ago. He too prophesied to people who chose to live disobediently. He prophesied to people who chose to live against God. Let's continue in verse 14. Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of His saints. Could I impress upon all of us, as long ago as Enoch lived, remember, he prophesied, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. He lived a long, long time before, again, people like Isaiah, people like Ezekiel, people like Hosea or any of the other writing prophets of the Old Testament, and yet, did you notice the latter part of verse 14 says that Enoch prophesied of the second coming of Christ. Don't you find that amazing? Jesus hadn't even come the first time yet. And Enoch was prophesying of the second coming. Let's notice what he said. To execute judgment upon all. As he referred to the events, the considerations touching the second coming of Christ and the end of time, Enoch prophesied that when the Lord does come at that time, and it was to be, of course, thousands of years into the future from the time he made the prophecy, he said that he's coming to execute judgment. Enoch delivered a hard prophecy. He's coming to judge those that are the ungodly. 
May I pause at this point to say this? Isn't it interesting? You and I just read the single most ungodly verse in all the Bible. Four times in one verse, the word ungodly appears. May you and I never forget then that the strength and the boldness and the forcefulness of the statement of what Enoch prophesied, he's coming to execute judgment on those that are ungodly. And their ungodly deeds that they've committed and the ungodliness that have filled their hearts. God does not ignore these things, nor does He turn, if you please, a blind eye to it. But He's coming to execute judgment upon all, to convince all that are ungodly of the ungodly deeds that they've done and the ungodliness that they've committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken. Might we be impressed the breadth of Enoch's prophecy. He talked about the things they said. Words can be ungodly. He talked about deeds they'd committed. They were ungodly. He furthermore noticed in verse number 15 began by saying that they themselves are ungodly. So could we point out whether it be in the mind, whether it be in the words, or whether it be in the actions, all of them can be places where ungodliness appears. The strength of Enoch's prophecy needless to say, was very bold indeed. On that slide, you'll note this. It's impressive to appreciate that the statements that Enoch made, as you'll notice on that slide, was in a time of increasing wickedness. I say it that way for this reason. A moment ago, we had just highlighted that Enoch walked with God. And may we never forget, it's not as though the world in general was a wonderfully encouraging place for faithfulness. For after all, it seems with each increasing generation, there was greater and greater wickedness. In fact, we are soon to read about Noah. And might we remember that the very thoughts of men's heart was only evil continually in his day. It is with that in mind. Enoch was bold in his conviction. Remember his name? It meant dedicated. In the midst of this world that was turning to wickedness and turning to ungodliness, as we've just noted, he was dedicated to the Lord. What about you and me today? Should that not be at least a description of us? None of us know what the future holds, at least with the details of that. But if increasing wickedness tends to be the case, if ungodliness continues to ramp higher and higher, might you and I be known for our dedication to the Lord too? Enoch then goes on to say this, verse 16 of Jude. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. Are there pieces of that that sound somewhat familiar to our day? People who are given to murmuring, people who are given to complaining, people who are given to walking after their own lust, whatever they think that they want to do. It sounds very familiar to me, and I'm sure that it does to you. At that point, might we notice, Enoch, you see, faced a lot of the same kinds of behavior and the same kinds of conduct that you and I are well acquainted with even today. And yet, dedication was that for which he was known. 
As you and I close that slide, could we then highlight that we too might consider that what would the life of Enoch have looked like to his neighbors, to his acquaintances, to the people who knew him? His life likely would have looked very different. He was known for dedication to the Lord. His family was known for that. And yet, the world was given to things that were their own advantage, things that were of murmuring and complaining character. Enoch must have stood out. I'm reminded of 1 Timothy 4.12, aren't you? Be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in faith, in charity. The thing for which Enoch at least was known is encouraged upon us to be an example of dedication, to be an example of commitment to the God of heaven. The bottom thing on that slide, and one matter before we close it, is to encourage upon us then a consideration that though Enoch lived a long, long time ago, the Bible has some things to say about him that would encourage upon us a great encouragement of faithfulness. There is one passage that we will use that adds even more in consideration to this, and it's the very one that was the lesson text. Let's turn to Hebrews 11 and look at one additional passage that speaks about Enoch. Hebrews 11 is well known to us in that it is the, the list of the heroes of faith. The listing of these through who the course of time were known for their faithfulness. It began, of course, with Adam. I'm sorry, with Abel in verse number 4. And it moves forward individual after individual. But in verse number 5, we encounter Enoch mentioned like this. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. Let's devote the latter part of our lesson to a development, to a bit of a consideration from that passage. Let's step somewhat through it, phrase by phrase. It says, By faith Enoch. Keep in mind then that that's the title I gave to the lesson, By Faith Enoch. We learn something amazing. Coupling this with Romans 10, 17, we appreciate then that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. The faith that Enoch had was a response to the communication that God had presented to him in that day and time, namely the Word of God. Our faith today in principle comes in exactly the same way. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Fortunately and blessedly, we have what Enoch never did, in that we have the written text of the Bible, upon which we can found our faith in strength and in verity. But with that, let's go back to verse 5. By faith, Enoch was translated. We've already learned tonight in the lesson, or at least been reminded of it, that at the tender age of 365, Enoch was translated. I say the tender age. You and I today would consider that a very, very long life. But yet remember that Adam and those that were Enoch's forefathers, they lived much longer than 365 years. Jared lived to be 962. Others, 895. For right now, could we note this? 
Enoch was translated. On the slide, you'll notice some interesting observations, or at least matters, that should come before us. In James 2.26, we remember that James, the inspired writer, pointed out this truth. For as the body without the spirit is dead, even so faith without works is dead. And although James was making an inspired presentation about faith and the necessity of works that go with it, he used the characteristic of death as a way to help understand it. He said the body without the spirit is dead. Now you and I know that that, of course, is the thing that we recognize as death. When the spirit departs the body, the body is left behind lifeless. It's left behind dead. And we proceed to bury it, and we proceed to take care of it in the ways that are, that are dignified. But that spirit has just gone elsewhere to live in the realm we call Hades, to await the second coming of the Master. And yet, we notice here it says that Enoch was translated. The Hebrew word's interesting. It literally carries the significance of the idea he took a different form, instantly passing into that realm beyond this one. His spirit, even to this day, resides in that realm we call Hades. But he did not die physically in the same way that you and I shall if the Lord delays His coming. For that reason, on that slide and as a development of this passage, it says, "...was translated that he should not see death." Death is that reality that stands as a matter before us. And we know the certainty that will be connected to it. But yet, in regard to Enoch, God translated him. He was taken instantly into that realm beyond this one. It's fascinating to consider that, isn't it? But may I suggest it goes even further in this regard. Verse 5 will say, He was not found because God had translated him. The text would seem to suggest that people had looked for him. Remember, he was translated. He simply wasn't here. And it would seem that there were people who were curious. They had looked for Enoch, and they couldn't find him. That sounds to me at least somewhat like the way often is described for us with the supposed rapture that the Bible doesn't teach. That there are things that are just going to be such that people are gone. Well, it seems like Enoch was gone. Maybe Family members and acquaintances and neighbors and friends looked for him. They didn't find him. God had translated him. Look at furthermore at this statement. It says, For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. What a fantastic statement. You'll notice on that slide that some considerations about that will take us in this direction. The Hebrew wording is a bit strong. It points out that before his translation, before that passage into the realm beyond this one, he had this witness, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. Now Enoch, again, may be such that we could wonder, how did he get that testimony? In what way did God share with him information that his life was an open, pleasing thing to God? The Bible doesn't say. We don't have that information. But we have this assurance that it must have happened. And at that point, again, he was translated. 
at this point could I ask that you and I, in a sense, have the blessedness of something like it. We have the Word of God. If your life and mine is consistent with it, we too have the dramatic proclamation from the God of heaven that your life pleases me. What do you think about Galatians 2.20? Paul there could make this beautiful statement. As he described things like this, there he said it like this, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, in the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul said, I have died, but Jesus lives through me. And Paul thus could appreciate a sweetness and an approval to his life, and you and I can do exactly the same. If we live with the Word of God etched upon our heart and living in consistency to it, we too can have at least a kind of witness, a testimony from God that our life is pleasing to God. May I suggest that's very meaningful and it's very compelling. Near the bottom of that slide then we could say this. There is the opposite side to that coin. And how very, very powerful it is too. In 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 7, "...to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God." God knew Enoch. He translated him. And Enoch had walked with God. And can two walk together except they be agreed? Amos 3, verse 3. At this point in time, does God know you and me like He knew Enoch? Is He such that He's pleased with the way we're living our life? You see, if we're walking with God, we will be pleasing to Him, and we will thus lift high what He considers pleasing. Verse number 5 closes then. For before His translation, He had this testimony that He pleased God. In many ways, some of the finest thoughts about life are wrapped up in the thought about Enoch. Let's close our lesson then like this. We have given our consideration tonight to reflecting on an Old Testament character who lived a long, long time ago. But yet, how many pertinent matters, how many things are so meaningful to us? Enoch walked with God, but he was not, for God took him. I might suggest then that you and I too can have a beautiful testimony in light of our open dedication to the things of the Word of God. Our discussion tonight has not been about Enoch, or rather not been about Methuselah. It's been about his daddy, the man known as Enoch. As we close this lesson, what about asking this? Methuselah lived on the earth a long, long time. But one of the main things said about him is he died. And yet his daddy was such that he walked with God. What about you and me? How will our children look back upon our life, a life known for its dedication, like the name Enoch would suggest, or a life perhaps like Methuselah that was long, but he died the year the flood happened? Did Methuselah die in the flood? He may well have. We can hope that he lived in faithfulness so that he died that year before the flood waters came, but we don't know that. Which will it be for you and me tonight? Which will it be as we sojourn in the latter days of our lives, this evening, 
if we could be of assistance or of benefit to somebody here who maybe you have had Enoch to challenge you tonight that you need to make some changes. Remember, it may well be he did in the 65th year of his life. You may not be age 65, but if you need to make some changes, just like Enoch, you can do it. And God will be delighted if you will. And your life can be a profound blessing to yourself and many others from this point forward. Enoch walked with God, and you and I can too. The gospel plan of salvation is God's lovely demand and invitation. If you never become a Christian, do it tonight. Believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. But if you would wish to rededicate your life to Him, you can do that as you repent and confess error, and we will be delighted to pray on your behalf this evening. If we may do that, we would be encouraged if you would encourage us to do it while together we stand and while we sing.